Yeah. Let's pray. Father, we together, we together thank you that you have put us together in a family that you call the church, particularly the local church that assembles here at Riverbend. We thank you that you make us part of a family. We love one another. We weep with one another. We, we rejoice with one another. Uh, we, we don't always understand each other's sufferings, Lord, but we still love each other. And, and that's because you've loved us. And that affects us, Lord. And so what a delight to be together, Lord. We pray for so many that are also suffering with um, this illness that's going around, Lord, and pray that you would give them strength and they would recover quickly and be with us as well, Lord, soon. Lord, thank you for this night. We look forward to being in Exodus. Um, teach us great things about you, Lord. We want to know you more. We need it, Lord. We need to know you better each and every day to get through the trials of this life as we long for your appearance, Lord. Thank you for this time together in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus chapter 7, 1 through 13 is all I'm going to get through tonight because I want to set up uh, the 10 uh, plagues that are coming and there's a lot of work to do in these first 13 verses, uh, I found out as I began to study on it. I've been working on it for a couple of weeks as I've been down, so um, get ready. I'm going to give you both barrels tonight, so um, I'm loaded and ready for bear. Um, I struggled with the title of this, but I ended up landing on this, The God of Involuntary Freedom. The God of Involuntary Freedom. I know probably when you picked up your notes, you're going, uh, Scott's still sick. Uh, <laughs> Uh, as I began to think about what God is doing in Exodus, and, and of course this is known by anybody that studies the book, it is a picture of what he's going to do in the future. And when you study Pharaoh and you study the nation of Israel and the Egyptians, nobody on their own wants to follow God, including, including the Israelites. And we're going to prove that to you over it. They want to go back constantly. Well, you'll see, they, they complain against Moses and God and say, you took us out of Egypt, weren't the, we had meat in Egypt, weren't the graves good? Nobody wants to follow God on their own. And you're gonna see that as we go through this. It is the most marvelous miracle that he saves us. Because we will not come on our own. Listen to this statement. We cannot possibly exaggerate the distance between us and the holy God. He isn't just a little holier than us. He isn't just a lot holier than us. He isn't even immensely holier than us. He is infinitely holier than us. You can't possibly overstate the miracle God did when he caused us to be born again. When he brought us out of slavery, and then add this to this, and made you holy so you can be in his presence. So it's an involuntary freedom that we receive. We on our own will not gain this. And, and when you study this, you begin to realize, boy, God did something so far beyond what they understood he was doing. And I'm not sure Moses understood it till later. So don't miss the parallel in excess with our salvation, with the atonement of Christ and all the work. And, and even us in ministry, those of us that, by God's grace, step into ministry, we understand, and we'll see this in Moses, this undeserving grace that was put on us to, to be a mouthpiece in some level for God because we don't deserve it in any way. 
So let's a couple of thoughts in this, this passage. Number one, how to be a divine mouthpiece of God. How to be a divine mouthpiece of God. I think each and every one of us that would claim to be Christians, I would trust that you would want to be a mouthpiece for God in some way. Not all stand in the pulpit, but all of us should and can, if we know the Lord Jesus Christ, we can be a mouthpiece for the Lord. Look at verse one. Then the Lord said to Moses, see, I will make you as God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. Now, this verse helps us understand that Moses has a divine appointment, not because of personal achievement. We know it. he's a murderer, right? He ran away. He, I mean, his track record is not good. He is not there because of his, his own achievements in any way. And, and think about this. We who serve in the full-time ministry are quick to recognize, God, I would not be here. I, I have no accomplishments on, on our own. No matter how many sermons preached or people that come to faith or whatever, it, all the glory belongs to the Lord because we know who we are. <laughs> and we know what we deserve. Now, I, I, I always want to make this statement because I, I, I don't like teaching worm theology without teaching our positional holiness. <laughs> so, yes, before salvation... I, I am that statement that I made earlier. I, I am immensely, infinitely set apart from God. But at salvation, God positions me by his grace through his son's finished work, calls me, listen to these terms found in Colossians, holy and blameless. Now, if you're a Christian in here, that should just set you on your heels just for a moment, doesn't it? Even as a saved person, you should go, whoa, wait a minute, <laughs> I know me. I actually know what I did today. And yet that's our standing before our holy God. Holy and blameless. And then he takes people, ordinary people, and he uses them for the mouthpiece. Whether that's you with your neighbor, co-worker, or you preach a sermon, you teach a Sunday school class, or you train little children down the hall, or whatever it is, he lets us be mouthpiece for him. It's staggering, isn't it? So in this verse... It reminds us that the Old Testament understanding of a prophet, it, it teaches us what a prophet is. Here, isn't it? Moses is not um, an information uh, coordinator or commentator. He's not just there to commentate. He's commissioned by God to deliver a certain message. It's a divine message given to him to deliver. And so we, we start to understand what the role of a prophet is. And then, and then you can't help, I'm just getting out of Christology and we were teaching about Jesus Christ, the prophet, priest, and king. We start to realize that the prophet, there, there's, there's no greater prophet than the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the prophet was, was man uh, from God to man. So, so God's message to man. And so Jesus Christ was, <laughs> he's a perfect prophet, isn't he? He, he, brought, he, he had no sin, he brought the perfect message, and he brought that to man. And so we revel in that fact, but here we start to learn this is Moses' job. You're not there to commentate, you're not there to put in your own suggestions, you have a message, you are to divinely deliver it. So Moses is there to help temporary for the mouthpiece, and as we'll study, we'll see that Moses, um, excuse me, Aaron is the mouthpiece for him for a while, but we see to watch him kind of fade away after a little while. Um, but Moses is the prophet. Well, another passage, just real quickly, let me read you to help you understand what God's doing with Moses. We see the same thing done with Jeremiah. Jeremiah 1, uh, verse 7 says this, But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am a youth, 
We're in the inner end of perspective. Uh, Moses is very elderly in this text, and Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah is very young. Because everywhere I send you, you shall go, and all that I command you, you shall speak. I love that. Boy, that's a great reminder for people who handle the word of God. I'm going to send you, and I'm going to tell you what to speak. <laughs> is, it, is that the problem in our churches today? Too often? Speak what God has given. Verse 17, dropping down a little bit in that text, he says, now gird up your loins and arise. He's a young boy he's speaking to. And speak to them all which I commanded you. Do not be dismayed before them or dismayed or I will be dismayed before them, or I will make you dismayed before him. So here, he says, look, I, I'm gonna make you as God to Pharaoh and Aaron as the prophet. Now, verse two reminds us that he says, here's what you're supposed to do. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall speak to Pharaoh that, that he let the sons of Israel go out of this land. So there's no room for Moses to edit the divine message. Don't edit it. Here's what you to do. This verse also displays that God's clear plan is to deliver his people from the domain of darkness, the domain of Pharaoh here. I'm going to deliver them. I'm going to bring them, notice it says, out of the land. Now, this book keys on God's salvific power and salvific plan to redeem and move his people from uh, a ch- his chosen people out of the, out of the hand of, of Pharaoh and out of his domain. Now that's exactly what Colossians says about us. Listen to this verse, Colossians 1, 13 and 14. For he, God, rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So in Egypt, you're gonna see God, he is going to come into the domain of Pharaoh, take his people out of that, involuntarily take them out of that land, bring them into the kingdom, into the land that he has for them. He does the exact same thing with you and I. He marches into the land of darkness, the domain of darkness. He grabs you and me by his sovereign plan from the foundations of the world and takes us out of there and places us into the kingdom of his son. It's amazing, isn't it? The parallels are amazing as you go down through this. You get more and more excited as you study this. So yes, we may, we can be the mouthpiece of God at some level, but we never edit the message and we never forget what he's done. What happens is people stop to forget, stop forget, they stop reminding themselves what God has done and their message starts to change. That's why Paul says, we once were we once were. I came from this. He always is doing that. He's reminding himself and the people, we once were enslaved to sin, but God has set us free. See, that helps us not edit the message. Second thought. Who hardens the, heart of, the hearts of men, and how do Christians handle hard-hearted people? Who hardens the hearts of men, and how do Christians handle hard-hearted people? Look at the first start, just the first few words of verse three. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. We'll stop right there for a minute. One of the things about teaching expositionally um, that sometimes is a little bit difficult or, or challenging is you can't skip stuff like this. <laughs> if you're teaching topically, you just you go right by this and nobody even thinks about it. Right? Well, I wonder what that meant. Well, he's just on to something else. 
We teach expositionally, we have to handle hard things, don't we? <laughs> you come across this passage and say, well, the Bible says here, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. What does that mean? Is that fair? Is that right? Is God just in doing those things? I mean, there's a lot of questions that have to be answered when you come to this passage, doesn't it? Or should we just go on and see what he does with the plagues? I think we should stop and try to figure this out. Let me give you a few thoughts this, this evening as we think through this. One, the word heart. We'll start with that because it's often used in scriptures and it's often describing what, what we refer to as the inner person, the inner life, the soul of man, right? It, it's, it's talking about something uh, different than this muscle that beats in there. It, it's, it's often spoke of the bowels. I mean, it's, yeah, the feelings of it. I mean, it's, it's the inner person, the inner man here. And then this term hardening usually uh, is attached to it, particularly as we're dealing with Pharaoh. And, and there's three main root Hebrew words that are used throughout the book of Exodus. And I just want to give you uh, just some of the translations of them, how you can read this. Number one, the word hardening means to become strong. To become strong. Uh, this is used in chapter 7, verse 13. Just drop down. Let me, let me give you just a little bit of the translation there as we read it. Yet... Pharaoh's heart became strong. That's, that's how you, you would translate that word. I mean, he's, he's, he's getting rock hard, right? I'm gonna stick my heels in. I'm gonna resist you. I think I'm stronger than you. That, that's, that's the idea that's coming across here. So when we're talking about a hard heart, we're talking about those things. The second use that we see very often is to make heavy to make heavy, chapter 7, verse 14, then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is stubborn. He refuses to let the people go. So this is the idea, Pharaoh's heart is heavy. Remember when your little ones would try to lay on the ground and do everything they could to not let you pick them up? <laughs> they, they grab onto stuff or they, you know, or, or you're trying to lift someone who doesn't have any uh, will or helpfulness in there. I mean, they're just like, man, you're like dead weight. That's the idea. His heart has become like dead weight. There is no help in it to help you. There's, there's no life in it. It's just dead, heavy weight. That's the idea of the Hebrew word here. Then the third use of this hardening um, is even more severe. It, it speaks of a stubborn refusal. Verse 3 is where we see it here. But I will harden, I will cause this stubborn refusal of Pharaoh. He will stick his heels in. He will fight on every level in order not to obey me. So all three uses of these words are used to describe the hardening of Pharaoh's heart throughout the text. And it points to an individual whose reaction to God's will is sinful. Always points to those things. And instead of joyfully obeying the word of God and, and learning lessons he has for us and, and, and being spiritually sensitive to what God's word teaches us, everything is now rejected. That's the idea that's taught in here. Teach them God's word, they want to fight it. This is what it says, nope, I'm going the opposite direction. That's the idea that we see in the, in, even in our life today with people. So hardening heart will not listen, will not obey, will not follow. The longer this hardened heart behaves this way, the less it's inclined to repent, and the mountain of consequences begin to build up over time. 
And eventually God gives the hardened heart over to itself and then to final destruction. And really what we're speaking about is the term rebellion. A hard heart and rebellion go much together. And rebellion without faith that would lead you to repentance, without genuine God-given faith, always ends in death and destruction. Now, sell that said, because every one of us have people in our life that we probably could maybe say they're in that hard heart category. God loves to save people like this. <laughs> there was a guy hanging on a cross next to him that I'm sure his mother was looking up at him going, this is it. This kid's been in trouble since the beginning. That's my interpretation of it. God loves to do that. He doesn't do it all the time, but we know he does it, does he? He loves to take people who, who are stubborn and, and he shows the magnificence of his grace. And so there is great hope in this, but I want you to understand there is, there is a hardening. Now, now, how does this happen? And, and, and we have to ask a few questions here. Is it fair for God to make people unyielding to their rebellion? Or, or is something... Is this something a loving, righteous God would do? Somebody would ask you that. Well, is that, that's not a loving, righteous God. One of the things we were studying and reading on a little bit in Christology was open theism. And one of the things open theism has done is try to make this softer and kinder God. And then they blew a whole lot of other things we won't get into. But you start going down that line, out goes all of the holiness and justice of God. That is an equal attribute to God, equal in every way to his love, mercy, and grace is his justice and holiness and wrath. And, and so it, they'll ask you, sometimes people will say, well, I don't think a loving, righteous God will do this. That can't mean, that can't mean what it says. That's not my God. People have told me that. I said, well, I'm not sure what God you have because that's what this one says. So, so it, how, how do we do this? And can God harden someone's heart and then condemn them because of their hard heart? Those are good questions, huh? So some have said this, as we think about this, here's some views about this. Some have said that God merely sees the hardening heart that already exists and brings further hardening as righteous judgment on the sinner. However, if that's true, then I think we're all in trouble. Because he would look at all of our hearts before salvation and say, well, their hearts are desperately wicked. They have no inclination for me. There's none who pursue me. There's none righteous. All of us would be eternally damned if that was, that was fully true. Now, I think there's some truth in that statement. But if that was fully true, we're all in trouble. Others say this, that God, um, others say this, that God does not override the will of a person, but permits the person to harden their own heart. So God withdraws restraining influences or introduces circumstances which he knows will lead their hearts into hardening on their own part. Again, I think there's truth in that view, but I want you to think about this. Ten times in Exodus, God says directly, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. So, so when we think about that, we go, well, wait a minute, we want to, I, I know in our graciousness, we want to say, well, they're just deprived and, and God's just kind of letting them go, but we can't get away from the text when he says 10 times, I will harden his heart. At other times, it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. There's at least five times that it says that. Or it says that Pharaoh's heart is hardened without identifying who did the hardening. So we have three different Three different hardenings here. One from God, one from himself, and one from we don't know where it comes from. So, I think it's significant 
as you start to study this, that in the first five plagues that we'll see, that Pharaoh hardens his own heart in the first five. The Bible say he hardened his own heart. But at the beginning of the sixth plague, the Lord intervenes and hardens Pharaoh's heart. Now, some might say that Pharaoh, Pharaoh's own actions lead to this divine judgment and he has consequences of his rebellion. And again, I think there's truth. But none of these go all the way. They don't, I don't think they explain it thoroughly enough. So let me give you some thoughts here. Before the plague even start, God told Moses he would harden Pharaoh's heart. Chapter four, verse 21. This is uh, Moses still back out in uh, the desert um, with his Midian family. Uh, he's already been to the Borden Bush. He's gone home. He's headed back, and he's going to he- make his way uh, to meet Aaron and so forth. And in verse 21, the Lord says, when you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that, here's the reason, he will not let my people go. So even before Moses is even known or even shows up to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's doing his little pharaohing thing over there. (laughs) Before that, he even gets there. Before he ever says, hey, I've met with God. Here's what God said. God says, I'm already gonna harden his heart. So we have to deal with that, don't we? Now, God had... Uh, had let the, I, I think it's true, God had let the wicked situation of Egypt develop over many years, right? The uh, Israelites have now have been there over 400 years. There's been secession of Pharaoh after Pharaoh. They believe they're gods. Uh, particularly this Pharaoh believed he was the god of the sun. Um, the, the consequences of these are building up, right? And God's letting that go. I don't believe he's doing that. But his plan was to intervene at a perfect time to display his most glorious power in the right time. Now look at chapter nine, verse 16. I wanna just look forward because why is he hardened in heart? We're trying to get to the bottom of this. And I think this verse gives you a hint here and we'll look at a few more things to help us understand this. Look at verse 16. But indeed, for this reason, ooh, when you see that, Bible students, you wanna pay attention. He's gonna tell us what he's gonna do. But indeed, for this reason, I have allowed you to remain, speaking of Pharaoh here, in order to show my power and in order to proclaim my name through all of the earth. Uh Uh-oh, God's got even a greater reason. And a righteous God can harden hearts in order to expose his most glorious character even more. And we start to see him doing that. So it it is not that God is going to tempt or induce sinful evil into the heart of Pharaoh because James says he does not tempt, right? But because it's already there. And now what he starts to do, he begins to withdraw um, any restraining influences on Pharaoh. He directly challenges Pharaoh in his position as a God. Now this raises up this sinful, this deep sinfulness within Pharaoh. And the Lord then displays an extent of Pharaoh's stubborn heart before the world and for all of history. So God, is, God wants us to see his glory through the stubbornness, the hard-heartedness of this man. Now, one last thought here, and then I wanna look at the book of Romans to see if we can put a cap on this. It would be made clear that the nations of Israel, I want you to get this, was released not by a voluntary act of Pharaoh, but by the sovereign hand of God. 
So he, he's not going to go, okay, okay, you can go. I'll, I'll let you go. Pharaoh does not have a say in this in the end. The last scene we see of him before his whole army gets wiped out, he's weeping over his dead son. So what God is doing is he hardens hearts often to show who he is, to exalt his glory to the most highest. Now look with me at Romans chapter 9. We have to go here because Paul uses this example to teach us this lesson. Romans 9 Verse 14. You see why we got to understand this before we start into plagues? Because otherwise we just kind of get lost in plagues. We got to understand what God's doing here because we want to see his glory. We want to see his full glory. We want to see what he's doing. We want to rejoice in the magnitude and the power of our God that we worship through Jesus Christ. And I think this helps us get ready for this. Look at verse 14 with me. What should we say then? There is no justice with God, is there? May it never be. So he, he's asking a question, rhetorical in a way, as he's dealt with Jacob I loved and Esau I have hated. Here he begins to say, well, is there injustice with God then? Because you know people are hearing him preach this gospel message and people go, well, that's not fair. What poor little Esau do? Well, he just had a bad, you know, he got a bad deal. He was hungry and he gave up his birthright and, you know, he just had a bad day. And people defend sin all the time. People love to defend sin because it helps them be justified in their position. And so now the attack doesn't go on the sinner, it now goes upon God. So Paul takes after this, doesn't he? Is there injustice with God? Does anybody in this room want to say yes to that? (laughs) Because I'm scared if you do. He's perfect in all that he does. And in every way, and though you and I, maybe in our infantile understanding of the scriptures at time, don't fully understand that, it does not change his character or position, right? And so he said, may it never be. That's impossible is what the Greek word means. Impossible, Paul says. Now look at verse 15. For he said to Moses, oh, well, here we go. We're right in our text, aren't we? In fact, he's quoting 916, I believe. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Verse 16, so then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs. Well, there went free will right out the door. There went your own strength in trying to get yourself to God. That, that, that's gone on God who has mercy. There is no salvation outside of the mercy of God. You cannot will yourself, faith your way, hope your way to God. It is the work of God. Because if you can do that, you will stand before him and say, God, I had my hand in my salvation. Now he's using Pharaoh as the example. Verse 19. You will still say to me then, why does he still find fault? Or who resists his will? I mean, I, I don't believe this. I, I can still resist. I, I don't think this is right. And then he uses an example, verse 20, on the contrary, you, who are you, O oh man? I love that phrase. It's such a good reminder. Anytime you start feeling a little puffed up and feeling like you've accomplished something in this world spiritually, read that verse. <laughs> Who are you? (laughs) 
can you imagine someone coming to the doors of heaven if you Pilgrim's Progress at the end, you know, the guys are trailing along with him. You know, they want in. Well, who are you? Where's your document? What do you have? It's a question that will be asked by so many. Many will say, Lord, I've done all these things. He'll say, who are you? See, we're, we're marked with his spirit. He knows who are his. So on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? And then he uses this incredible example. The, the thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me this like this, will it? Or, or does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honor, use, honorable use and the other for common use? And what if God, look at this, although willing to demonstrate his wrath to make his power known, endured with, patient, uh, with much patient vessels of wrath, uh-oh, prepared for destruction. Mm. There is no greater example of that verse than Pharaoh, and that's exactly what he's using. And so Paul's clear point here is that the relationship between God and man is conducted on the terms that God chooses, not on man's terms. And, and too often, and I, I think I said this not too long ago somewhere, is that what the problem with such loose theology that, that makes its way around the church is God is now handicapped. He is, he is now stuck waiting for his creation to make some decision so that he can act. That's not God. Maybe a God. But it isn't the God. He has to have control of all things or he is not God. Now, Paul deals with the human objection that God is unfair. He's taking this on, right? If he hardens whom he wills, making man not responsible, right? So is this, is this what you're saying? You think, well, he hardens so man's not responsible. But Paul argues that it's not impossible for man to dictate. It's, it's not possible for man to dictate how God should act. And, and he just uses such a great thing. Does the creation tell the creator what to do? Can you imagine the, you know, the lump of dirt of Adam? Uh, whoa, whoa, whoa. I want to be 6'3". Rib, do you really want to do the rib thing, God? Because, you know, why don't you use my appendix? <laughs> it, the creation doesn't tell the creator what to do. It's, it's so obvious, isn't it? But how come we can't get this? Because man is so consumed with himself, so consumed with looking at God through human eyes. Because you and I would not operate this. And that's right, we wouldn't operate this way because we can't operate this way. We don't have divine knowledge like this. And so we are so dependent upon God to save. And, and, and the clay and the, uh, the pot is so fun to play with, isn't it? You know, you're going around a little spinning wheel. God, I, I don't want to be a trash can. I want to be a china. <laughs> right? The clay does not tell the potter what to do. And yet that's the theology of so much around the world, isn't it? Because human theology dictates what they believe to be divine theology. This is all about hardening the heart, isn't it? Because God has a right to do it, doesn't he? He's perfect in everything he does. He has the right to judge sinners at any time in any way. 
And that's why we worship, don't we? Because you and I go, there go I, if it was not for the grace of God. And we sing and we preach and we live and we work at following God by his strength and his glory because we are overwhelmed that he took this lump of clay and did something with it. We're captured by it, aren't we? It's magnificent to us. So it is, it is, it is not unfair that he judges at the time in the way he chooses, is Paul's argument. Now, turn back to chapter three with, I mean chapter seven of Exodus, verse three. End of chapter three, I mean verse three of chapter seven, he says, that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. So here, now, Moses and Aaron are at this point. They, they maybe don't understand all that God's doing, right? They may not have the whole sovereign plan. They probably, like you and I, can't get our mind fully around that a righteous God does harden people's heart, draws some to himself, hardens others, um, that he is able to do that, but they are just obedient. But here he tells them why he's going to do this, because I want to multiply. I, I, want to, I want to put my power on display in the land of Egypt. Boy, many times, young, growing up in the ministry, like Moses, crying out, I want to see your glory, God. I want to study your word and see you and see you who for you are. That's what formed and shaped my views in, in those early years of going, I want to see your glory. I want to see your power. I know you can save, change lives, change me, change our church. You begin to pray for that because you read this and you go, you know he can do these things. And then notice he says, and I think this is out of the kindness of God. He tells him, I, I'm gonna do this so you can see my glory. So out of the kindness of God, he says, I'm going to put on display my power. And you're not gonna have to question it, you're gonna see it. I'm gonna put it right in front of you. Look at verse four and five. When Pharaoh does not listen to you, hmm, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my host and my people, uh, my people, the sons of Israel, from the land of Egypt by great judgments. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. Now notice this little word, when, as you start verse four. See, God knows Pharaoh's heart. <laughs> He isn't gonna say, well, I'm just gonna wait for him to harden. I'm just gonna sit back and maybe create some circumstances and then see how it does. And if he hardens, then I'm gonna do this. This is not how God works. God knows all people. He knows who's are his. Um, Jesus, when he cleansed the temple the first time, John chapter two, says he was not entrusting himself to those people because he knew all men's hearts. So he says, when, when this happens, Moses, when Pharaoh does not listen to you, <laughs> Can you imagine, you know, preaching a sermon on Sunday morning? Hey, Scott, you're going to preach Matthew chapter uh, 12 this week. We're going to teach on money and marriage. Great message. Don't miss it. Going to have fun with that one. Um, but they're not going to listen to you when you go. What? <laughs> yeah, you're going to go in there. The pack place is going to be packed. They're going to sing songs. But nobody's going to listen to you. I just want you to go and do it anyway. Great congregation. Thank God that's not here. So Pharaoh was going to oppose God from the beginning. 
He wants Moses to know this and he expects Moses to carry out regardless of Pharaoh's response. I love that. So, so how do you deal with a hardened heart of a person? You teach God's word. You, you stay on course lovingly. We, we're, we're not the judge. We're not the executioner. We're the messenger. You stay on course. One of the most difficult things that we cause more problems is when we deal with somebody who has a hard heart, who's caught in sin, who, who's not following God, and we compromise, we cause so much difficulty. And so he's saying, Moses, he's not going to listen, but you still have a message. Go do it. Isn't this, does this help you? It helps me so much as we deal with people in our family, in our, our life, in, in ministry. People have hard hearts. What does God say to do? Love me, obey me, go talk for me, speak my word, don't edit it. Now, furthermore, remember that God gave Moses signs to do, right? To Pharaoh. So some of these signs he does with a snake and the leopard hand and all that type of things, um, these authenticate the message and the messenger, right? Christ does this, he gives that strength to the apostles until we have a complete canon. He he's, he's does, God works this way, right? Secondly, he does this to divinely display the upcoming events that would indicate God's power of coming victory, right? So he, he's using signs and these wonders and these things to show victory's coming. It's gonna be powerful and it's gonna be amazing. And so this is part of why he's doing it. Third, he does this to reveal, reveal the prevailing view that Pharaoh is a God and he's gonna show him who the true living God is and he's, he's gonna undermine and prove that this so-called deistic power that Pharaoh has is not a God. <laughs> and, it, and it has no power and, and he's, he's a mere man and, and I am in control of his heart. So he's gonna do these signs to display all those things. I think it's fascinating. Now, notice in Verse four says, I will lay my hand on Egypt. That's, that's an indication of a hostile action, God's saying. Boy, I do not want God to deal with me hostility, strongly. <laughs> with a hostile hand. I, I, man, God, <laughs> I want God to be gentle to me. <laughs> I, I need to be reproofed. I need to be disciplined by my God at times. And I want his loving hand. You harden your heart towards God. You reject who he is. He's coming with a hostile hand. And we will see that his judgment will be swift and stern. He will separate sheep from goats. He will cast those who rejected him into eternal punishment. And here we start to see this. I will lay my hand on Egypt. Can you imagine that? Again, it's a term for us to help us understand God. And, and God isn't like us and the body parts and so forth, but we, he uses terminology to help us understand him. He says, now I'm coming to get my host. Notice that, it's my host, it's, it's ownership. This is not done by human initiative, it's my host, I'm coming to get him. And then he says, by great judgment. And this term is a fascinating term, it's used several times in the scripture, it has the idea of overwhelming magnitude of divine response to injustice. You do not want to be on the other end of God's great judgment. And he will respond to injustices. And I don't know how many times as pastors we sit with people and say, I, don't, I can't fix the evil that's been done to you. 
I can merely help you walk with God and not fall into sin because what is done to you. And we have to entrust that person to God. And we better beg for his soul or her soul because if they come against the judgments of God someday, they will not stand. And see, we start to react a little different in those circumstances. We start to trust God when those things are that way. One of the things I see in this as we go forward is all this displays a divine organization of God. It's not chaos. If you and I got to go into Iraq and, and get our people out of there, it's going to be crazy, man. Because <laughs> we're just going to blow it, right? We're going to go in and there's war. Things are going to be a problem. He just goes in there systematically. Boom. Plague. Boom. Plague. Boom. Plague. Boom. And he just systematically, without chaos, full and divine control, brings his people out. It's, it's masterful. It's our God. And he's sovereignly in charge of that to deliver them. And so all done through this covenant-keeping God himself, keeping his covenant, he keeps his word. These are his people. He's pulling them out. Look at verse five with me. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand, there's that terminology again, on Egypt, and bring out the sons of Israel in their midst. This phrase, know the Lord, knowing that I'm the Lord, Look at chapter five, verse two, and I think, I really believe this is a response, um, certainly premeditated by God, to Pharaoh. Chapter five, verse two, Aaron has come in, and he says, look, uh, Moses and Aaron have come in and said, let, let, my God says, let, let the people go. Pharaoh says this, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let them go? I do not know the Lord. Guess who he's going to know fairly decently when this is all done? Right? And so verse 5, as you go back to our text, the Egyptians shall know I am the Lord. Man, do I love that statement. See, I don't have to go along and prove there's a God out there. I don't think the Bible ever tells us to go prove there's a God out there. Teach the truth. He will make people know either you will bend your knee in in this sovereign design of God in our life to love him and serve him or you will bend his, your knee as his judge. And he, he just does this. And so he, I think this is a response to Pharaoh. Yeah, you, you don't know me, you're gonna know me. And, and leave no doubt that Pharaoh and the Egyptians know the reality of the supreme Lord when this is done. Notice it also says, I will come in the midst. I love that word i.e., the Lord is saying, I'm going to walk right in like I own the place and take my people out. There is, we get to the end of this, there is absolutely no resistance. They're actually driving them out. Get out, get out. Here's our gold. Take everything. We never want to see you again. Your God is, your God's way more than we want. In fact, the Bible says other nations go with them because they saw the hand of God. Look at 6 and 7. So Moses and Aaron did it, I love this, as the Lord commanded it, thus they did. Moses was 80 years old, Aaron was 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. So there's no protest of the divine verdict from Moses and Aaron. And I think their age in in verse seven points to the respect that the Egyptians would have them, even in that culture, even today in the Middle East culture. If you're older, there's an automatic respect that comes. So I think that's probably one thing that's um, why they keep having this ability to get in front of Pharaoh and they, and of course God's protecting them, but I think that has something to do with it. But I think the overwhelming point here, and, and I want you to get this, 
that age is no barrier to God who wants to use him or her for work. It is not a barrier. I hear, I'm too young, I'm too old, I can't do this. Whoa, 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 whoa. What are you, a feral? I can't speak. I'm scared of snakes. No, I threw that in, that's me. Um, <laughs> there, there, is, there is no excuse, and so we see, and I love, I love Moses here, because you kind of see um, there are three 40-year periods of his life, and I kind of wrote it this way in my notes. Uh, uh, first 40, Egypt, didn't go very well. Murder, fleeing. Second 40 years, wilderness, mm, been there. <laughs> Out there wandering around in your poor spiritual life. Why me? How's this happen? Not growing, just being a pain, not helping anybody. I'm out in the desert, not a part of the church, not doing anything right. So he spends those 40 years, but God gets a hold of him there. And then he spends the last 40 years as a leader of God's chosen nation. Isn't that amazing? He's in his golden years. Wait a minute, I'm supposed to buy a Winnebago and go play softball, as Piper said. I've worked all these years. Why would I want to help out in the church now? Ooh. This teaches us God has great plans. D.L. Moody said it this way. I love this quote. Said it so good I had to use him. Moses spent 40 years in Pharaoh's court, court thinking he was somebody. 40 years in the desert learning that he was nobody. And 40 years showing that God can do what God can do with somebody who found out that they're a nobody. He loves to use nobodies. He wants to use you. And he wants to do amazing things. No one, we, we wish no one would harden their heart. But if you know somebody's heart is hardened, right? And I just want to end this point and, and I'm probably in trouble and going to have to come back to this. Um, if, if you know somebody has a hardened heart, and, and believe me, this hits home with many of us, doesn't it? Be like Moses here. <laughs> Be like Moses. Speak God's word. Speak God's word to him. Don't edit the message. So much editing going on nowadays. Well, you know, we don't want him to see God as mean and we don't want this and we don't want that. So, so you can say it better than God? You think you gotta inside track into the hearts of hard-hearted people? That's foolish thinking, isn't it? Speak God's word. Don't edit it. Be quick to obey. I love, they said, well, let's go do it. Think about what he's been through. He's already been laughed at by Pharaoh. I don't know your God. Get out of here. Makes the people work harder. Now the people are mad at him. Pharaoh's mad at him. He's in no man's land. And so when God says, go do this again, what he does is he obeys. And I'm telling you, the second time is hard, isn't it? If you've ever confronted somebody and you've got to go back another time, no fun. Because if God has not softened their heart, they're even more mad. And they'll often take it out on you. And it hurts, doesn't it? But Moses teaches us, stay in this. And, and brothers and sisters, let me say this, and please don't miss this, speak the truth in love. Any person I've ever had to deal with, I, I would tell them, I know you may not believe this, but I love you. I love you. And I love you so much to come do something that in my flesh I don't want to do. Because I know you'd like to kill me if you could. <laughs> but I love you enough to say, friend, that's sin. 
and the wages of sin is death and it's starting to kill everything in your life turn to Christ plead with him you go well isn't God in charge of that absolutely but what do we do carry the message and we plead with them that they'll know the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, next week, <laughs> clearly, we're going to work on this next week. Um, we'll get into this battle for the divine possessions begins. Whose possession is Israel? Pharaoh's going to say they're mine. I'm a god. I'm the god of sun. What is his name? God Roth. You know, I think there's something in a movie, Night of the Museum or whatever. Um, he thinks he's everything and he thinks those are his people. Uh, God's going to go, they're mine. And I'm coming after them. And you're going to see this great clash. And it is even a contest. And we'll prepare ourselves as we look at that next week. Father, thank you for the reminder of this truth. Oh, Lord, um, we look at this text and we go, hmm, it would probably be us if you let us stay where we were at. And Lord, you'd have, have the right to harden our hearts. We, we're just the lump of clay. We're, we don't tell the potter what to do. We're just the creation, not the creator. You had the right even to make us vessels of wrath. And you would be glorified by that, Lord. But you didn't. And we are so gracious. We're so, so thankful and, and so amazed at your glory at your gracious act towards us, Lord. And so when we le- read this stuff, Lord, we want to, and I want to reiterate this, leaving in my prayer, Lord, we don't want to be people who, who are so, wow, look what he did for us, and oh, Lord, we know if it was not for your grace, there go I. And so, Lord, I thank you for passages like this and helping us clarify what we believe and knowing a God who knows all things and, and is able to do infinitely beyond the, uh, more than what we ask or think. He, he, can, he saves hard-hearted people. We were the hard-hearted people. And he saved us. And so, God, we're so thankful. So I pray that the brothers and sisters are encouraged tonight, Lord. We pray for those who are discouraged. They're, maybe their heart has been hardened. And, God, I pray that you would sovereignly work in their life and bring them to repentance, Lord. And maybe there's some of us in here working with somebody who has a very hard heart. Help us be gentle and kind and loving, but more, Lord, help us preach the message. We need God's word. It's our, it's our lifeline. So, Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us to be good, in a sense, prophets of God, bringing the message of God to man, Lord. And we'll do it with humbleness and graciousness, Lord. Lord, thanks for this church. Good to be here. Good to be together with everybody. Bless us now as we go serve you in different ways, in different directions. Bring us back together Sunday. In Jesus' name, amen.